This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. people. This is Coach Jen from Ocala, Florida, and you're listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for July 28th, 2020, episode number 2486. Western episode co-hosts Tara and Lindsay are out and about this week, gathering intel for next month's Hit'em free-for-all. So sit back and enjoy this previously aired masterpiece from the Hit'em Audio Vaults. Good Tuesday morning to you, and I do mean a good Tuesday morning. Well, if you insist on being accurate about it... You know, only somebody with perfect comedic timing could produce this much energy in one shot. You gotta learn that your time in the saddle ain't as rough as a life in between. Thank you for joining us today on the Western episode. Uh, here again with Lindsay Fitch, and we're just gonna talk a little bit about what we've been doing since we were with you guys last. And um, Trevor and I just got back from the world's greatest horsemen and the celebration of champions, which is something that we've talked a lot about uh, in the past few episodes with Kelly Buckley, um, where, you know, she, she was qualifying her horse. She was going from reigning to learn about rain cow horse and then setting it up to where she could qualify for this celebration of champions. So we actually go to that event and it's really great. You get to see all these people come in from all over the U S who've worked so hard to be the best in their region. And then they get to come and compete for the title of title of world champion. So uh, that's what we went and did. And normally Lindsay gets to go with us to that event, but we didn't get to see her there this year. So we have some catching up to do about some of the cool runs that we saw. So, but what have you been up to Lindsay? Uh, well, I've just been here in Colorado and doing a little bit of traveling within the state. I went down to Durango, Colorado and spent a few days down there, just catching up and kind of exploring that area down there. And then uh, here I've been helping some people with their horses and some training type stuff. I've got a couple people that are trying to move on a couple horses just because life circumstances have unfolded and they're not going to be able to keep them, unfortunately. And then um, some other horses that have just changed barns that have some behavioral stuff that they're trying to work through and uh, have more success. And then, like, I always think, oh, I wonder which kind she has in. So do you have more English horses or more Western horses or do you have a mix? Um, well, I always appreciate that you think that I know a lot because I don't ever feel like I really know anything. <laughs> uh, but right now I, I actually have a majority of English performance horses in that have quite a few missing pieces in their uh, background and or have just learned some quirky things along the way and just trying to help the owners navigate that and help the horses build skills. So, um, like I've got one horse who I've just been trying to like help him learn how to live outside and integrate into a herd. And he's really, really herd bound and emotional about the herd leaving him. Uh, so like, you know, a lot of, like when he first came, he would pace a lot in his pen and he'd pace a lot in his stall. And then he was a chronic coliker cause he was stressing out all the time. So, you know, just trying to help him understand are the things that we ask them to do to not be stressful for him anymore, anymore. And that like, he can, he can take it on like a champ. And then, uh, yeah, I've got another English performance horse who has a pretty bad, uh, trailer loading problem. He's, like the trailer loading problem is really the root of a setback problem. So, um, you know, and he's had that ingrained in there for a long time. So just kind of being creative and how to help him. Cause he's like, you know, over 17 hands and he's, he's huge. So he knows how big and strong <laughs> he is. Um, and then I've got two other horses. One is a horse that's rehabbing who, is like really pretty afraid of noises and stuff behind her and stuff down around her legs and her feet. And so like even a lot of the stuff that they're needing to do as a part of her rehab is, you know, mm. kind of bringing out stuff that she's afraid of. So she, they were doing one of her treatments the other day and I guess she panicked cause she got afraid of what was by her 
feet and then she fell down on the concrete and then like almost hurt herself more just trying to do the rehab that the sports medicine veterinarians had recommended for her. And then the, I have another horse who, uh, she's really neat horse, but she has, it's just kind of helping the owners dial in really more of what she needs versus just doing a, a program with her, if that makes sense. So like the owners kind of know all the things to go through, but those things don't quite always work for that horse. So just trying to help them understand her a little bit more and do the things that she needs in conjunction with what they already know and, um, and to keep progressing towards their high level jumping goals. So she's making progress and that's always really rewarding in any and all of them. But what about you guys? Do you guys have a lot of foals on the ground and interesting training horses in or? No, we have we have one foal on the ground, and we have a mix of this time of year. We have some of the show horses, and we have some of the colts, and then uh, some horses that come in like for a tune-up before show season starts. So I feel like this is the widest variety of time for us. Uh, and so we actually have like if sometimes I would think about this is when we use our snaffles a lot. <laughs> uh, so it's perfect timing that today on today's show, we're going to ask Trevor about the snaffle and some of the training tips that he has for the snaffle and how he knows when to progress out of it. Um, and even some of the horses that we get in that are bridal horses that come in for a tune up, you know, Trevor goes back to the snaffle to just kind of break down some things for them. So, uh, so that'll be fun. We'll get to talk to Trevor about the snaffle today in the show, and then we'll hear more about world's greatest horsemen and the celebration of champions with Kelsey Love. Thomas, who actually got her way into or earned her way into the world's greatest horseman competition with her uh, celebration and win in world's greatest horsewoman, the very first one. And then we're going to hear from Amy Raymond, who is a silversmith. And uh, we've got some interesting questions for her about how silversmithing and engraving and how that, how she got into it, but also maybe how that is more closely tied to the Western industry. So we've got some exciting things on today's show. In the world of horse racing and elite equestrian sports, it's all about how to prepare and repair. Ice Vibe is a truly portable and highly efficient circulation therapy system for your horse. Before activity, prepare to prevent damage by using the Ice Vibe's vibration pads. Repair after the event by using the unique combination of cold packs and vibration to minimize swelling and encourage blood flow. And because it's battery powered, Ice Vibe is truly portable. The essential and affordable tool to prepare and repair. Ice Vibe. You can find out more details about Ice Vibe at ice-vibe.com or horseware.com. Or ask your local tax shop or online supplier for more information about Ice Vibe Circulation Therapy from Horseware. So it's time again for our Bridal Up segment, where we're currently going through each of the stages of the Vaquero Bridal Horse tradition, the Snaffle, the Hackamore, the Tourain, and the Bridal. We're progressing through the series with Trevor Carter and gaining his insight on the form and function of each tool, how to choose the best fit for you and your horse, and training tips for using and progressing with each. Uh, In last episode, we covered different things like the weight of the reins, testing the buckle, silver, no silver, different you know, hinges function, yielding to, yielding from, you know, what, where's Trevor's trusted sources are for buying uh, his equipment or his favorite places. So today we're going to talk to him more about the training and progression of training in a snaffle. So Trevor, could you just tell us a little bit, what do you look for from the horse when you're training in the snaffle? So when I introduce a horse to a snaffle, um, you know, I try to look at like the first couple of rides or even a horse that I recently might've bought that I'd like to hang the snaffle in the horse's mouth and, and, you know, if I can be on the ground and just kind of bend them around and get them to give me some lateral flexion, I want to get a feel of what they think of the snaffle. So some things that I look for, I look to see whenever I pull the rein around, if I turn it loose, do they whip their head straight again or do they hold their head around? You know, I, I want to get a gauge of what my horse thinks a release is. So that way when I get on their back, I can have a better idea of, of what to be looking for. You know, sometimes I might even put my hand over their neck and gather both reins and just see how well they might back up off of both reins or maybe get a soft feel just, just to give me a perspective um, before I get in the saddle. So once I get in the saddle, uh, things I'm looking for from a colt perspective or from a horse that I don't know a lot about of, I'm going to, I'm going to alter how I use my reins. So, you know, you've heard folks say, don't, don't pull, don't, 
don't hang on the reins. Something that I look to introduce a horse to with my rein usage, I'm going to pull up on the rein. So if you all can imagine yourself on a horse, uh, instead of me pulling the rein directly to me or to my hip or to my thigh, I'm going to grab that left rein and I'm going to lift up the same angle as the headstall. I'm almost lifting it up towards the sky. So if you can imagine how that bit pulls on the horse's mouth, that first introduction of the snaffle, I want to pull on the, the lips of the horse's mouth. Whereas if I just pull straight back to me, if, if you can just think of pulling yourself, you know, as you sit in your truck or as you're, as you're sitting listening to this, you know, audio, if you pull straight back, you're going to pull not only on their lips, but on their bars. And some horses might, you know, be offended to that. So my first initial use of the reins, I'm going to be lifting up and around to help just make contact on their lips. So, you know, that's, that's a starting point that I would do with any horse. Um, you know, somebody asked me, Hey, Trevor, can you get on this horse for me? That's how I would see, that's how I would introduce those reins, uh, to that horse. So one of the things that we, we actually wanted to ask you about in the last segment, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit here, uh, is we were wondering about cavisons, you know, what mm-hmm. are they? Why people use them? Do you use them? Difference between Western using them, English using them? Just kind of just a general overview of the cavison and then kind of your approach to a cavison. So if, if I were to use a cavison, and it's not something that I use regularly, uh, some horses just have a hard time, you know, yielding to and from the pressure of the snaffle. And, and sometimes horses can learn to open their mouth. So we want to talk about why use a cavison? Well, so if, if a horse has had a lot of pressure on them, or like I said, they're just not understanding the use of pressure, they can open their mouth, it's called gap in their mouth, so they can get away from the reduced pressure. The, the pressure is reduced on their mouth. So some people put cavisons on to keep that mouth closed so that the horse cannot get away. And so if I were to use a cavison, it'd be on a horse that's that's really busy in the mouth. They chew on the bridle. When you pull on the rein, they might open their mouth. Uh, but I want to talk more about the fit of the cavison. I, I want to be sure I can put at least two fingers in that cavison because it's not a matter of keeping the mouth shut. It's a matter of giving the horse a correction if they open their mouth. So you, you want to think of if you have it too close and too snug, the horse is still going to always try to open their mouth. And if you have it large around their nose, it's almost like uh, self-inflicted pressure. It acts almost like a hot fence. You know, if you're walking along a hot fence, the hot fence doesn't jump out and shock you. It only engages if you go and touch it. So the use of the cavison, if it's loose, when the horse finally opens their mouth, boom, they hit the cavison. So it, it's used in a way that it'll teach the horse, if he just keeps his mouth shut, and yields, then he won't run into the cavison. Um, but like I said, I, I try not to use them because it's a good test for me on how well I'm communicating with my horse. Uh, but, it, but again, some horses we get in, they, they have some developed habits and or we have like an anxious horse that has just really had trouble understanding what pressure is. And I, and I don't mind putting one on, but I will wean them off of the cavison to see if progress is being made because you want to be sure that you don't have a cavison on as a crutch. You don't want to just have it on there and believe that the horse is going to be great without it. So any horse show that I show in, you're not allowed to show in a cavison. So you got to be real careful in, in my line of work that you don't just rely on the cavison to give you the response you're looking for. So some rules of the cavison, make sure you have enough space in there that you could at least put two fingers in there. Uh, I don't want to have it too low, um, but also take the cavison off during the ride and see if you are finding progress with your horse. Okay. Thank you. I didn't, I didn't want to digress from where we were headed with this, but I know that's something that is a common question and we didn't have an opportunity to touch on it during the last episode. So mm-hmm. one of the things that Lindsay and I were talking about is kind of what, what are some of the things that you want to see a horse pass in a snaffle. So Lindsay's going to ask you kind of more about that. You bet. So one of the things that you seem to be really good about is like breaking down what it is that you like your horses to be able to successfully 
like pass or do in their training. So when you're riding a horse in a snaffle, like what is your checklist of things that throughout your ride that you're making sure you're testing on the right or the left or in both or in like on loose rein contact in your snaffle that you want your horse to pass in. And then like, how does that checklist even apply when you have a bridle horse that comes in for a tune-up that you're going to have put in training that you'll often put back in the snaffle to improve some of their, you know, uh, some of their feel and getting them prepped. Like how does that, does that checklist change for the age of the horse or can you tell us a little bit about that process for you? You bet Lindsay. So, I'll start with the first one with how do I progress out of the snaffle? How do I know my horse and I are getting better to move along? Well, what I, I try to use the snaffle. Um, one of the first checklists that I try to do is, is transition. See if I can transition downward from any gate without the use of the bridle. So that's always a good test for any rider that shows up or, you know, something that you can test on your own is can I ride around on a loose rein and can my horse feel of my energy you know, if I'm trotting, can I relax? Can I slow down to a walk with just my body without using the reins? Uh, can I be loping along or canning along and relax enough to trot or maybe walk or maybe even stop and back up? So, you know, that, that's, that's a big test for a lot of folks, uh, just as a, the first checkoff list to know if I'm progressing. Because a lot of us, we know we can get the downward transition with the use of the reins. Uh, but it's more of a challenge to sit there and say, okay, can the horse feel me reduce my riding and can my horse slow down with my body uh, without the use of the rein? So that's where I'm going to start first. That's going to be an, a, a good challenge. Then my next is I, I like to ride with my body and be able to turn with my body. Um, and so, you know, using my hips and my legs, if I can ride a circle with my body without using my reins, and I try to do this at the walk and the trot. Sometimes the canter can be pretty, pretty challenging for folks. But if my horse can check off a walk and a trot, riding a circle, riding around like a serpentine style uh, pattern with just my body, that's letting me know that my horse has a good understanding of staying at the same speed, but kind of mold, uh, it, the horse allows himself to be molded with me. And then, you know, the use of the snaffle, what I try to do is, you know, as I introduce the snaffle, I'm riding with two hands and I do a lot of opening gates. I do a lot of, you know, I like to have things in my, in my hands, whether it be a rope, whether it be a flag, whether I can bounce a ball. I like to drink coffee. So I ride with my coffee mug often. So <laughs> what, what I'm getting at is I try to ride with my, my reins where I can ride in one hand. And so I'm testing out how well does my horse back up? How well does my horse go sideways? How well can I open a gate? And how well can I ride those patterns, whether it be a circle or a square, if I have one hand on the rein? So it'd be ideal, Lindsay, to, to check off all those things with minimal use of my snaffle. And if it's something that you can think about as you're listening to this, if, if you can just put your reins in your left hand and don't worry about split reins or anything, just have your reins. Your left rein is coming out of your left pinky and your right rein is coming out of your, your index finger. It's all on your left hand. What I try to do is I try to work on lateral flexion just by rotating my wrist. So if I want to have my horse bend to the right, I rotate my wrist to the right and that right rein is pulled with my index finger. And then I try to rotate to the left and I pull the left rein with my left index finger. That's going to test out my softness quotient and see if my horse can bend or flex or give me really good suppleness in our lateral flexion. If I can do that one-handed, then I know that my horse has a really good understanding of flexion. It, it doesn't need a lot of help knowing where to bend. And so if, if I can go out on a ride and ride 75% of the time with the reins in one hand and my horse just needs a little nudge with the rotation of my wrist, then I know things are progressing. So if y'all if can, again, imagine you're riding your horse, the, the wider my hands are from the horse's withers, the greener the horse. The closer I can ride my hands to the withers, the more seasoned my horse is. So, so those are checklists that I can go through to say, okay, now it might be time to start advancing out of the snaffle to my next tool. And, and I, I, I've really tried to ride 
with my left hand. I really try to write with just my right hand just to give myself the benefit of being ambidextrous, but also helping my horse feel those moments. And so the, the transition period, the rider, now you can decide, and can I go check out all those things? Can I check out my transitions without my reins? Can I go and open and close the gate? Can I side pass with the reins in one hand? Can I carry, you know, whether it be a flag or a stick or something in one hand and get that done? Those are good checkoff lists to let you know that you, it's now time for you and your horse to start looking for the next tool, which leads into your next question, Lindsay, of, you know, when you have an aged horse or a bridal horse or a horse that's been ridden to different tools, how can you help them increase their maneuvers by going back to a snaffle? And that's the neat thing about the snaffle. You know, we just got done going to the, the celebration of champions and there's a competition called the world's greatest horsemen. And it's four events with one bridal. And so all these horses have to be shown in different events. And as I watched those folks get their horses ready, 75% of them were in a snaffle tuning up their horses. So what, what I, with your question about taking an aged horse or an older horse back to a snaffle, what do you look for? Well, again, like the snaffle, like I mentioned, the terrace question, I try to get that flexion really, really good lateral flexion. So, you know, sometimes riding a bridle, the horse gets a little straighter through their, through their body. They, they don't always keep that flexion or that nice sequence of suppleness in their body. So when I get an older horse, I get a lot of, you know, um, horses throughout the year that just come and they need a little more education. And by going back to the snaffle lens, you can really find, you know, some stiff spots in their, in their, uh, suppleness and something I look for. So if you can imagine yourself, you're looking down at your horse and you bend their head around for lateral flexion. What I see a lot of horses do is they'll, they'll bend and they'll, they'll give you their eye and they'll give you their nose. But if you look at their chin in relation to their shoulder, it's, it could be improved. So something to look for if you're listening to this saying, well, I have an older horse and he rides fine in a bridle. How could I go back to a snaffle? How could that help me? Well, when you bend your horse around, you might ask that horse to keep flexion until their chin starts closing the distance to its, its shoulder. So as you listen to this, just think of looking to your right and bending your chin to your shoulder just how that gives you a different feel through your neck, through your body. That's a good challenge I put on older horses. Um, it's almost like uh, giving them a stronger pop quiz if they don't know, you, you need to give me better flexion. So some horses I do that at a standstill to teach them. Other horses I do that in motion. Um, so like counter arcs or just riding on a circle, I'll look for that lateral flexion and wait for that chin to give and be really soft. That That's a that's a good exposure for the horse to where you can say, all right, you need to be doing a little bit better than what you are. Um, but I, I really enjoy going back to the snaffle on an older horse just because, you know, I, the same way I answered the first question, Lindsay, on how do you know when you can progress a green horse? I go back and check out the older horse. Can I do all those things in one hand with a snaffle? Or, and sometimes you'll find with a bridle horse, they'll push, push on a snaffle. Uh, they become quite pushy in their mouth. Uh, they rely on the leverage or the curb strap to engage. Uh, but when you go back to a snaffle, they feel a little bit heavier. Um, so, so I try to check out those things in a snaffle uh, to see because it'll it'll reveal itself in a snaffle, whereas in a bridle, uh, the bridle might hide some of those behaviors. That's all been really helpful information. Another question we had would be, what are the myths and truths about the snaffle? So you hear a lot of things of like, I would always do this with my snaffle or, oh no, I would never do that. Like I would never tie in my snaffle or I would always lead in my snaffle or, you know, could you just give us a little bit of insight into the myths and truths about how that applies and what you do? You bet. And that, and that is a, you know, uh, a lot of people, kind of refrain from tying because they don't want their equipment broke. That's probably the biggest reason why I wouldn't tie with certain headgear is in case my horse set back or, you know, if, if it's walls being tied, they might chew on my reins. Um, but I try to do a lot of my groundwork in my snaffle. Once my horse is seasoned in the snaffle, um, you know, I try to use some split reins or some McCarty reins and I try to do some groundwork. So my horse learns that even though it gets pulled, 
on the ground, it still has to follow that feel when it's around its pole. So, you know, as far as tying a horse to the snaffle, if you trust the horse doesn't pull back and you've done your homework um, to where that horse knows how to be tied in a halter, uh, but you also understand the risk that if you tie them, they might chew on your reins or they might rub their, you know, like if you ride the horse for a certain period of time and they get sweaty and they get itchy, they might rub on your head stall. As long as you're aware of that, then I don't see a problem tying your horse with a snaffle. But um, if I do tie with a snaffle, like with loose rein, uh, split reins, I'll, I'll wrap those reins. Um, and then if I have a McCarty line set up, it's, it's tricky to describe through an audio piece. Uh, but I, I can tie my horses hard like they had a halter on with that rope set up. But overall, I want to make sure all my horses can trot off of a field if I pull on the rein. Um, but I, I try to do a lot of my groundwork. Uh, I send them in and out of gates. I send them through our wash rack area. I sometimes even go catch them with my snaffle and, and do the groundwork on my way to the saddle. It's just a way to be efficient. Uh, but also if you're ever caught in a bind and you had to do something and that's the only headgear you had on your horse, you knew you'd done your preparation ahead of time. Yeah. I feel like that's one thing you're always doing a great job is preparing for the what if scenario. So I really loved learning about what kind of my main takeaway was that, you know, the more green and the more you're learning in a snaffle that your hands are wider. And as the more you progress, you start to get your hands closer and closer. So that sounds like it sets us up perfectly for when we talk about in the next episodes, the hackamore. So thank you so much for joining us today, Trevor, and sharing with us your insights on riding in and progressing out of the snaffle. As promised, we're here with Kelsey Love Thomas, who says she's just a girl in a cowboy's world from Rising Star, Texas, and she really is exactly that. So winner of the inaugural NRCHA Cowboy Class, recently crowned champion of the world's greatest cowgirl, and just competed in the world's greatest horseman in Fort Worth, Kelly Kelsey joins us today to tell us more about how she got started and where she's headed. So thank you for joining us today, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you got started into horses, Kelsey. Okay. I grew up on the central coast of California, uh, Park Hills, California, and um, just grew up riding anything and everything I was allowed to, really. Um, I high school rodeoed, and then I worked for a cutting horse trainer for a while in my 20s, and... um, just um, have shown in the RHAA, Ranch Horse Association of America, and that's kind of led me to the cow horses. So was your family into horses, or did you, or, or were you like the lone one, or how did you even just get started with horses? Um, yes, both my mom and dad are into horses. My dad's side of the family, he was kind of the lone cowboy for a little while. Uh, my grandparents on my father's side have a winery, um, and that's a big part of the family. Um, my mom's side uh, is kind of a ranching background. Definitely, her family had a has a decent size ranch in Parkfield, California, and um, yeah, she grew up doing that high school rodeoing, and so it's definitely from both sides, first generation for sure. Okay. But now, are you still in California, or have you migrated to another place? Yeah. um, After I graduated, so I graduated in 2001, um, kind of migrated out towards Texas, Oklahoma, and my mom actually uh, bought this place in Rising Star in 2003, and that was kind of my home base through my 20s, where I would have worked for um, several different people riding horses in California and Texas. Um, but since 2008, this has basically been my home base right here in Rising Star, Texas. So what led you to go out to Texas from California? Uh, horses, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Texas is where it's all, not where it's all happening, but a lot of it is happening here, whether that's roping or um, cutting cow horses. There's just a lot of horse stuff going on, um, in this area. So this, this was a, just a good spot to do, do a lot of that. 
So what got you started in RHAA? Like what, what made you pick that place to get, is that the first association uh, that you got involved in when you moved to Texas? Yeah. Um, pretty much that was, I had shown a little bit in the NCHA and the cutting. Um, but I quit working for Russ Westfall. I worked for him from 2006 to 2008 and 2008 I came um, moved back here and went to work for my mom and stepdad riding horses. And um, the RHAA finals is in Abilene, which is just an hour from where I live. And uh, I went and it's during the Western Heritage. And so I went, I was there for that and I watched the finals. And I remember watching Trip Townsend's show and it was just He's so smooth and so good. I just remember thinking, I want to, I want to do that. I want to be like Trip, and I really have um, modeled a lot of what I've done so far. Kind of followed in his footsteps, but that's how I got started. Is just because it was handy. It was right down the road, and it was something that looked like a lot of fun. That's awesome that you say that because I feel like if someone goes, "Oh, cowboy," immediately I go Trip Townsend, right? Like <laughs> I feel like I feel like that goes that guy, and I think his name is Stony Jones, who used to compete in a bunch of the WRC yep. events. And like those two, those two go in my mind. So I have to know when we, I watched you at um, at Art of the Cowgirl in the prelims. Tell us about your steer stopping, kind of if you could tell people <laughs> first. Tell people. Um, if you can, what you're judged on in steer stopping. And I happened to watch Kelsey's run and it was like, I just went, Oh my gosh, that girl is so handy. So if you could (laughs) tell people, tell people what, um, you're judged on in the steer stopping event. And then if you would tell people how your run went with the steer stopping, I believe there's only three boxes you're marked in. So you have your box run and rate and then stopping. So, um, and then there's, of course, some penalties. Like if you miss your first loop, that's a three-point penalty. And anyhow, so yeah, I back in the box and nod my head and I let this steer out just like I wanted. And I run up there and my mare reads good and I just split the horns. Okay, so when you talk about the box, that is that the roping box? Is that what do they look for when your horse is in the roping box, getting ready to follow the steer? What what kind of things do you look for in your horse? Let's, you know, there may be things a judge looks for, but what do you look for when your horse is in the box getting ready to rope? Right. Okay. So that was the first roping run I've ever been judged on. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to learn all this as well, but what I believe is you want your horse to walk in there calmly, turn around back into the corner. So you're prepared to rope and then stand there flat footed and, you know, ready, but calm until you ask ask them to leave and then so what happened you you got into the box and then tell us about your run from there okay yeah so I run my mare in the box turned around backed her up um nodded my head and scored my steer out just like I wanted and and in my head at this time I run it's like okay everything's going good so we run up to the steer and she rapes off just nice perfectly and I throw my loop and I split the horns so that was so I still telling myself it's okay just fish it on well I ended up fishing it into a perfect figure eight so that's kind of nearly worst case scenario because that's an illegal (laughs) head catch which will get you a zero (laughs) so um we're approaching the end of the arena and the stripping chute is shut your arena is all closed off because you have 90 seconds to rope your steer and stop it um so we're running towards the end of the arena and I kind of seize the opportunity basically when the cow got to the end of the arena up against the stripping chute gate I just reached (laughs) down and grabbed my rope off and I couldn't do this again if I tried but I basically (laughs) just turned my hand over and had another loop built (laughs) um yeah so it wasn't what I wanted in that you know I wanted to go out there and just catch it and have a beautiful stop and do that but um i was glad that we managed to turn a zero score into a 65 so yeah we uh, i managed rope 
rebuilt my loop, wrote my steer and stopped it. And we, yeah, at least completed our run and got a score instead of a zero. That's awesome. It, it was, it was spectacular to watch and you ended up making the finals. So yeah, we, uh, (laughs) we did. So how many, so tell people a little bit about how the world's greatest horsewoman event worked. Like how many, you know, competed in the preliminaries, how many made it to the finals? Uh, can you just kind of give folks an overview of how it, how it worked? Yeah. So there was actually a great turnout as far as entries. I believe there was upwards of 60 women entered and, um, we did the four same preliminary events that you would do in world's greatest horsemen. So we started out with the herd work. Then we did a reining, we did the steer stopping, and we did a fence run. Um, and then they took the top 10 composites back to uh, finals, and they had that at an, another facility. Um, and that was kind of more like a ranch horse run where you do a reining pattern, and there we just boxed it, and then we roped our cow and stopped it. So the arena that they held the finals in, they call they call a Lienzo, and they have a lot of Mexican rodeos there. And it's really a round arena, which makes for a fabulous viewing event, right? You have it. <laughs> there's not a bad seat in the house, but it can make right. it to be a really challenging competition event. So, have you ever competed in anything like that arena before? No, I have not. Um, I've competed in some smaller coliseum type arenas but never that was it was a round pin Um, yeah so yes it (laughs) it did (laughs) uh it was definitely uh different than showing in an arena where you know you have a long fence and a shorter fence so were did you have like did you have a strategy did anybody give you any strategies for competing in this round (laughs) arena um yes um I was told to definitely make sure that I run, you know, I run down all the way, basically as far as you can for your rundowns. Um, and there were no markers like there oh, are yeah. um, in a cow horse event. So didn't have to worry about that. Um, that was kind of the main thing I had in my head going in is to make sure that you, you know, don't, stop too soon because then when you go to run down the other way it's just going to shorten it up so um that's kind of what i went with for that the pattern that we did in the finals was a run in so you did three stops kind of right off the bat i just made sure i went all the way down and then um we did our circles after the stops and that was actually a little bit um easier you had a few more strides across the pin because it was just as long across as it was down so um you don't end up loping a circle it was kind of in an egg shape but um um that that was kind of thing I made sure that I picked my center points in the pin because there were no markers it just happened that there was gates on either (laughs) end so that's what I tried to square up with and just went with that that's good. So how did you how did you feel when they announced that you had won the world's the first ever world's greatest horsewoman? <laughs> um, I felt uh, pretty amazing. It was a dream come true, really. I mean, when when everybody enters, you have hopes of winning. But when it actually works out that way, it's just um, you're on cloud nine for a little while. And the, the title that came with that event is pretty cool. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about your mayor, Elvira. So, um, I'll never give my husband a hard time for buying a horse ever again. No, um, (laughs) (laughs) it all started with a Cremello CD diamond Colt I bought through the snaffle bit sale. Um, not this last October, but the October before, and I have a, another mare that I bred to him. And so my husband, Buddy, was he was like, well, if we're going to have one mare, we might as well have two. And he called our friend Park Greason, who we have bought some, a couple other horses from in the past, and told him 
what he was looking for, a mare with um, some quick feet. And so Park said that he had one he thought he, that would work. And so we bought her as a brood mare. Um, was the number one reason we bought her, even though oh, she was wow. only five years old. Yeah, so I picked her up in May at uh, the Western Heritage in Abilene and uh, picked her up and we got her and another horse actually kind of a package deal and um we brought them home and just kind of riding them a little bit and that uh cowboy class i became aware of that class that was during the snuffle bit in the end of august trip actually mentioned it at a ranch horse <laughs> show we were at in roaring springs and he said you should see about entering that class so um I called and found out that Buddy and I were both eligible, and um, there was another little horse that we have that he had shown some and I was showing, and he was like, well, pick pick which horse you want to show at the snaffle bit in the cowboy class, and so I went with Elvira, um, even though she had never been shown in a cow horse class before. Park had shown her at the NCHA fraternity. Um and then kind of took her home and kicked her out and um, got her up and started messing around with her. And, yeah, so I just had a good feeling about it. And um, I picked her, and Buddy got to show the other horse. And kind of history from there, um, I showed her in Fort Worth in a snaffle bit. Um, I think that show was on October 13th. And we did good there. We won that. And um, they opened the books for the world's greatest horsewoman, October 15th. So I was like, I'm just <laughs> going to enter and see what happens. I got, was that October, November, December, January, three months to get her in a bridle. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we just, I entered and the rest is history. That's awesome. So you won the world's greatest horseman and then that let you to that got you your entry into the world's greatest horseman, which has been going on for several years. And that was in Fort Worth. And so, I mean, we'd love to hear more about your experience there, uh, but we only have so much time. So we'll have to see if we can get you on another time. But I want to you rode the youngest horse and it was your and you were one of the very first time competitors in that event. So uh, just kind of what was your overall what were you happy with with your mare and what was your overall takeaway from from the event? Well, it was just so cool to be there. Um, a little bit intimidating, but it was just a awesome awesome thing to get to do. Um, and then the fact that we you know won our spot there was pretty neat. Um, a takeaway from getting the show at world's greatest horsemen, just have to go for it. <laughs> just have to, you're never going to win if you don't enter and you have to start somewhere. So that's just where we happen to start. Yeah. <laughs> just where we happen to start. <laughs> well, that it was really <laughs> awesome. You, you did a great job and we're excited to, to be able to follow follow you more as you go throughout uh, progressing with your performance. What are some of your goals in the future? Or what do you have on the horizon for your calendar this year? Uh, well, actually, I've been invited to uh, be a wild card in Road to the Horse 2021. So, awesome. um, yeah, I'm going to go out there this year and um, kind of take it all in and then I'll have a year to prepare to compete at that. And then, uh, we have a whole herd of horses around our house. So just, um, showing more and training more horses and, uh, just trying to get better every day. That's super. Well, great. Well, we, uh, here at Horses in the Morning, we've done some of the live coverage at Road to the Horse, and so we've got a lot of listeners who will be thrilled to hear that they'll be able to see more of you. So thank you so much for joining us today, Kelsey, and we wish you all the best in the future. Thank you, guys. Hi, I'm Louisa Williams from Horsewear, and I'm here today to talk to you about our Sports 5 massage rug and the new rug, the Sports 5 ZX massage rug. 
Both our sports bike bikes are made from lightweight, breathable materials. That means you can use it after exercise when your horse is still a bit warm and they won't get over hot. A lot of the massage rugs can be quite heavy and are breathable, so that's one of the benefits of the massage rug. You can also move the panels around, which means that you can put the panels where you need them. Some of the benefits of this rug is the fact that the massage panels are set at quite a low hertz. Now what this means is that you reduce the muscle tension rather than overworking the muscles. There's nothing worse than preparing your horse for exercise with a massage device and overworking the muscles and then halfway through riding the horse they're actually tired. So the panels are set at a low hertz and they alternate and they're intermittent. And what this means is that you relax the muscles, allow blood flow into the muscles without overworking them and making them tired. The reason horses need uh, massage rugs like this is because they're working so hard. When the horses are working hard, the muscles get tight and stiff and sore, and when they're stiff and sore, the blood flow is compromised to the muscle. The muscles need a lot of blood flow and oxygen. So by relaxing the muscle, you get the blood flow back into the muscle, help to recover and repair. The Sports 5 ZX or the Sports 5 Original is ideal to work alongside your physio in between appointments to help keep their muscles relaxed, to keep the blood flow and oxygen for repair and recovery. Again, if you're unsure of anything using the rug, please always consult your vet and always make sure when your horse is in a stable using the massage rug that they have access to water because you'd be amazed that it can actually make them thirsty while the muscles are being relaxed. To learn more about Sports Vibe, visit Sports Vibe, that's sports, S-P-O-R-T-Z, vibe.com. That's sportsvibe.com. So in our In the Industry segment, we talk about bringing to light all the different positions in the industry that are available. So today we're joined by Amy Raymond, who is a ranch wife, mom, silversmith, and engraver. She has two wild boys who rope and show cattle. Her husband is a fifth-generation rancher on his family ranch in Helix, Oregon. They have a registered Angus herd and a commercial cattle operation. She tries to balance cows, kids, horses, dogs, fence, 4-H, uh, roping, and learning. So it's quite a lot, and on top of all that, she is an amazing silversmith. Uh, we found her through uh, some of her posts on Instagram and uh, just amazing, beautiful work. And so we asked if she'd come on today to tell us a little bit about how she got started and how she has uh, continued to progress with her craft. So thank you for joining us today, Amy. Well, thanks for having me, guys. So tell Appreciate us a little it. bit about how you even became interested in is silversmithing the right word? Yeah. Um, it's funny the word so like a silversmith is more of a fabricator so like the making of the piece um okay. the thing with me is i am both a silversmith and an engraver so you are very correct in in calling me both things okay just to explain it a little bit okay so how did you get started in one or each or both um i actually started as an engraver um, but besides that point, I, um, I graduated from college. I came back to the ranch and was helping my husband every day. And I loved every bit of it, um, until Christmas rolled around and I was trying to figure out what to get him for Christmas, but I didn't <laughs> have any of my own money, you know, like he gets paid from the ranch and it, it's our personal money together. But how do you sit there and ask him if you have enough money to buy him a new cowboy hat or the, that kind of makes sense. Doesn't it? Yes. Like, yeah, it does. Like, how do you keep it a surprise? Right? Like, right, right. How yeah. do you keep it a surprise when it comes through on the credit card statement yeah. that I went to the American hat company and bought him a hat. Yeah. Um, so I was having a hard time with that just internally. You know, I wanted some of my own money that I could, you know, buy my kids things and it not come out of our personal account or, you know, buy my husband a Christmas present or do something fun. So I um, started seeking out and making phone calls and trying to find somebody that would work with me. Um, at first, I kind of looked at leather and it seemed like there was a lot of people doing leather work. Um, and then I just kind of fell upon this. Um, I really enjoy working with my hands and I really, I really, um, appreciate the Western heritage of silversmithing. You know, it, it's been happening for so long that a cowboy really wants their gear to look good. 
and they want good quality gear because these guys work really hard every day for what they have, what they have, excuse me. And, um, I think that stuff's important. I think it's important to have quality gear and, and something that a cowboy really appreciates and it wears well. And, you know, there's just a lot that goes into it. So it, I just kind of fell into it and started, I started building head stalls and, and doing some more gear type stuff. And recently I've been doing more jewelry. So that was a really long version of that answer. So what are, like, are there certain styles within engraving? Like, is there a certain, you know, I don't even know. Like, are there certain styles and do you have a preference of your style? You know, kind of. There are, there are different styles. Um, there's, you know, like you'll see a gun that's been engraved, um, and, and there's different styles within the gun engraving world. Um, so, so they have different styles and then, you know, the traditional cowboy Western way of engraving is called bright cut engraving. It's what you see on the backs of, um, like the background of a Montana silver belt buckle is generally bright cut. Um, more of the gun engraving has been moving to the silver and cowboy gear um, sector in the last at probably 10 years. You'll see more of it. Um, it's a really it's a really neat way of engraving with more inlay work and more more elaborate engraving, more fine tuned engraving than like a bright cut. A bright cut's pretty big and bright. Um, so there's there's different styles of engraving and you can do different things with it to kind of give it a different look. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Um, my style of engraving, I kind of lean towards bright cut engraving. Um, I think it's maybe not dying, but there's not as many people bright cut engraving anymore. They kind of use a different, they kind of mix the styles together and have kind of made, made their own, which is amazing and awesome. And people should do that but I didn't ever want to see the bright cut engraving die. So I've been really focused on becoming a better bright cut engraver over the last 15 years that I've been doing this. So that kind of answers your question a little bit. It, it does. And sometimes, you know, like patterns and, you know, sometimes I don't know if like patterns or styles or techniques. So are those techniques and styles or I don't know. Um, does it make sense what I'm asking? Yeah, kind of. So like a gun style of engraving uses um, more of like a single point and shade, more shading. Um, it kind of shapes the leaf and makes it actually look like a leaf where a bright cut is more of a, um, it's taking a tool and making the brightest cut you can to reflect the most amount of light. Okay. Okay. That Does makes that sense. Does that kind of make sense? Yes. Yeah. That kind of helps me look at the difference and be able to see if one, okay. Right. Yeah. So does, does like a flower with one kind or a flower or a leaf with one kind or another, does it take, does one take longer or? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the style within the gun engraving um, group that you pick. Some styles take more time and some styles take less time. And, um, you know, you kind of get handy with something, with some stuff. And so then it um, takes you less time. You know, I'm quicker with a bright cut because that's what I'm used to doing. Um, It'll take me more time to do like a gun style of engraving because, um, I just, I just don't do it as much. Yeah, that makes makes sense. sense. It does. Sure. Do you have a favorite piece that you've done? Like, do you have one that you go, man, that's I'm most proud of that for any particular reason, because it was your first or because it had cinema, you know, what's kind of tell us about one of your favorite pieces. So probably today, one of my favorite pieces was my spurs that I made for Art of the Cowgirl last year. Oh, cool. Um, and, and only because Art of the Cowgirl gave me the opportunity to try something new and to push myself to this next level with it. You kind of get in this, sorry, I kind of skip around a little bit. You kind of get in this, 
like your rhythm in your shop and you do things in a certain way and they look a certain way and and it feels very plateauish, you know, like you climb, you climb, you climb, you hit this plateau. And I had hit this plateau of everything not looking the same, but relatively looking the same. And then Art of the Cowgirl called and said, hey, would you make something extravagant for our auction? And something that, you know, push yourself, you know, do whatever you want to do. So I decided that I would take a pair of spurs and I would sculpt them, which means, so a a piece of silver or a piece of metal is very one-dimensional. It's it's very flat. And what I did was take out all the metal around each leaf and the flower and make it a three-dimensional look mm. with, with taking away metal and using sandpaper and polishing stones and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> um, <laughs> my hands hurt and my... Um, but, but it was really cool because it, it pushed me to that next level. You know, you, you ride on that plateau of things kind of looking the same and you feeling the same about your work. And then, and you need a project like that to then boost you to this next level of your, your abilities and what you can do, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's sometimes so when you, when you accomplish something like that, then I feel like it opens up what you're looking at next. So yes. what's the next thing you're thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, the funny thing about an artist's brain is <laughs> they, it's kind of like herding cats. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a lot of things that were, that have been kind of rattling around in my head in the last um, couple like, well, it's been a year and a, it's been two years since I auctioned off those spurs. And I have came up with some really funky, cool earrings since then, because you kind of see things in a different dimension, you know? So you kind of mm-hmm. are looking at things. Well, like I made a pair of hoop earrings and instead of just seeing the hoop, because most people just engrave the outside of the hoops, but then from a side view, people don't see the engraving because they're on the the edges of the hoops. So I decided I'd put a piece of metal on the inside of the hoops and engrave that. So there was not only like, not only from the front of the person are you going to see engraving, but now on the sides of the person you're going to see engraving too. So I think it kind of gave me a different, um, it just gave me a different thought process of how things are put together and and where to limit myself because I try not to ever limit myself. I love that you said the hoops because I really think hoops look so nice on ladies. And then, yes. but like when I wear them, I think, I don't know, I just, it catches my hair and is this really worth this and all this. And then I saw those hoops that you made and I was like, oh yeah, it'd be so worth it for those. Yeah. <laughs> They're really beautiful. So. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> They're a lot of fun. Um, there's there a lot of cussing and swearing and throwing things <laughs> out the window happened when I made those, but they're worth it. They're worth it. Just They're kind of funky and different, and I love making funky, different things. Yeah. Yeah, you'll have to tell me. What's your Instagram account where people can see, or where is it that you like to send people to see your work? Um, Instagram is probably the best. Um, it's quick and easy for me to post pictures and, um, it's where you're going to see more pictures of my stuff. I try to do some stories too. I was before art of the cowgirl, I was doing like how to videos on how to make stuff. Um, but it's Amy underscore Raymond is where to find me on Instagram. And I have been teaching a lot of classes, too. So it's been pretty fun. It's awesome to be able to interview somebody who's teaching your trade. Can you tell us a little bit about um, where do we find, like, obviously, if we're in Oregon, we would call you. But if if you're someplace else in the United States and you're wanting to learn 
how would you contact artists or makers and how would you go about doing that? And what were some of the things you went through when you were starting out? Um, so I had a really hard time starting out in this. Um, and it probably wasn't, it's not hard. Anybody that has a shop and anybody that has a desire, I mean, you don't have to have a shop to get started. You have to have a desire. You have to have the want to learn because this is, it's not, um, it's not something that's really, really easy. It's something that you're going to have to practice and you're going to have to take some time and figure some things out and buy some tools. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's not just, um, it's not just one, two, three, get going. Um, I got started and I learned the engraving side of it. And that was, that was a great way to do it. Um, right now I've been teaching the fabricating side of it because I think that's a very important, I think people need to learn how to build a piece, a necklace or a ring or a bracelet and build it well and, and build it, you know, to, to the point that people can have it forever that, and that's been my goal as a teacher is to build things that people can have forever. Um, I asked. I actually teach classes with my best friend who it's pretty cool to be able to sit there and teach a class with one of your best friends and it's the classy trailer and she's on Instagram too. Um, and she's an amazing fabricator and she just does things differently than I do. Um, and it's really helped with my fabrication and my ability to build things along with, spending time with a really good friend has been a blast. So, and teaching people and most of the people don't know anything about it when they walk in and when they walk out, we both expect that they're going to um, be able to build a bracelet or a ring or something and have the steps to do pretty much anything that they want with being a silversmith. Um, maybe not necessarily an engraver, um, to learn the engraving, you probably either you come visit someone like me or you go to a class that Glendo GRS puts together. And it's a company out of Emporia, Kansas. They put week long classes together and you can go learn, um, jewelry engraving or gun engraving or, Western bright cut engraving, or you can learn, um, there's so many different things that they teach. And I actually go back there and assist with classes back there, um, with Diane Scalis, who is an amazing teacher and my mentor that I spend a ton of time with. So that's about teaching classes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you it's do that fun. there in, you- if people wanted to find out more about, I mean, you told us where they could find out more about your actual oh, pieces and work, but yeah. how would someone find out more if they'd like to learn more from you? So um, if I teach a class with the Classy Trailer, we either do it at Pendleton Cattle Barons Weekend or Art of the Cowgirl. Um, they're usually about a day to a day and a half long classes. Um, we've been talking about opening them up and doing one later this summer, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen. Um, just cause of time. And we both have kids, so yeah. they come first. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. but mostly it's, you know, art of the cowgirl, they allow me to teach there, which has been amazing. And then, um, I'm a board member of the Pendleton cattle barons weekend. So I teach there. They don't have a choice. Yeah, <laughs> they, just, they have to put up with me. Understand. Uh, well, Amy, we really appreciate you coming on and telling us about some of the differences, you know, between silversmith and engraving, and the different types. And um, it is so great to know that you share your knowledge to help continue this art into the future. And so uh, we'll make sure that folks have your Instagram link and can check you out and see some of the beautiful work that you do. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
on congrats and coming up. There's really a lot of great champions out there. Check out nrcaj.com for the whole list. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about any of these guys, be sure to check out their websites, their Instagram accounts. You can even learn more from Trevor on carterranchhorse.com if you want to see some of what he talked about in today's show. You can find the links to today's guests and the show notes at horsesinthemorning.com. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for Horses in the Morning. You can have all the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. You can also listen on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Speaking of iTunes, don't forget to rate and review your favorite podcast. Five-star review help others find the shows. Thank you to our sponsor, Horseware. And thanks, Lindsay, for joining us. Can't wait to have you on next time. 